This is Crypto Radio, powered by MoneyWeb, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Since the birth of Bitcoin, there have been articles predicting the end of traditional banking. Not because of Bitcoin, but because of the blockchain technology on which it relies. In this decentralized universe where lenders and borrowers can reach across time and space and transact without an intermediary, banks would seem to be facing an uncertain future. To talk about this, we are joined by Chris Becker, who is blockchain lead at Investec Bank. Welcome, Chris. Good to be here, Karen. Thanks. We're also joined by Josh Miltz of Bitfund, a crypto company that allows you to build your own crypto indices and invest in them. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Did I introduce it correctly? You did. Okay. <laughs> Chris, what about this idea that banks are dinosaurs and blockchain technology will bury them? True or false? Somewhere in the middle. I think uh, banks are not dinosaurs necessarily. They're most run on computer technologies, which is only 50 years old at this point. And most banks in SA haven't been around for that long, you know, in fact. Banking might change. The way we do banking, consumers use, utilize, and access financial services might change, but the function of banking will remain. So it's really just a question of what is banking going to look like in the future? Is it going to be the same familiar uh, businesses that people deal with today, um, it, it maybe some of them may be around, uh, you know, connecting up to the new ways of doing banking and financial services. Um, some might fall away because the, the industry is always changing and new names are appearing. So there'll be, there'll be new competitors uh, leveraging new technologies. Um, but clearly there is a change under, underway. Something is afoot. You know, technology systems for money and, and banking services are changing. And if traditional banks don't adapt to this change, well, then I think maybe your your initial question to me, the response to your initial question to me would be true. But I do see banks slowly adopting these new technologies. Right. I mean, I think there's there's one thing that I saw happen in the last week where there was a transaction for over $1 billion on the blockchain. And the cost of that was $3. Now, you look at what are you paying on your Visa card, you know, when you do a transaction or what a merchant is paying, you know, that's, uh, you know, 2%, sometimes 3%. This is a game changer, is it not? Uh, If that becomes more widespread and the adoption rate. Yeah, look, it is, Kieran. But I guess what I'm saying is that doesn't mean that banks can't uh, leverage the Bitcoin blockchain too, you know. So so what I'm saying is uh, Bitcoin is not necessarily something that, uh, has to happen outside of traditional banks. It can it can very easily be integrated into traditional banking. So in other words, currently, like you pointed out, you can swipe your Visa card in order to, to do an international transaction, to buy goods from, let's say, Amazon. Um, and that's a very easy and simple process. There's a cost to the merchant of around 2%, and there's going to be Forex costs to that transaction too. Um, you can also make an international payment using the SWIFT payment rails, and there's costs associated with that. But it's very easy, actually, for a bank to integrate to the Bitcoin blockchain, which would enable their customers in order to do a billion-dollar transaction that costs $3. So it's not like it has to happen outside of the banking uh, yeah, environment that we're familiar with today. All right. So, I mean, if we were to talk about where this technology is likely to be adopted quickest in the banking sector, where do you see that happening? Is it in the payments area? Is it in peer-to-peer uh, lending, borrowing? Where do you see the, the change happening quickest? Um, 
Look, so if we're talking about uh, international payments and remittances, uh, you, you need to have a, a currency that's acceptable or at least has a market price in many c- countries. The dominant currency there is Bitcoin. XRP or Ripple is trying to compete in this space, but I'm not seeing a significant amount of traction to using their technology. Um, another area where we're seeing banks trying to solve for this sort of international payment or slash remittance space is by creating stable coins linked to a fiat currency. Um, there's a lot of issues that need to be ironed out. So I would say if banks are going to be participating, if remittance businesses are going to be getting involved, it's most likely that they're going to be using Bitcoin as rails to move money around the world. All right. Josh, yeah. let's bring you in here. You've obviously given this a bit of thought. What do you, what do you see the future of money and banking looking five, ten years from now? Well, look, I think we the crypto market has already proved that um, crypto is an incredibly valuable tool when it comes to making payments that you can rely on and that you need fast clearance on, where you don't necessarily want some kind of an intermediary brokering that transaction. And in my mind, given that that's now possible, it almost has to, the world almost has to move in that direction. It will naturally. The benefits just outweigh everything else tenfold because you're cutting out middlemen, you're cutting out all sorts of costs along the way, and you're increasing the speed and the reliability of of those transactions. So my view is definitely in line with Chris's view that banks are going to have to adapt to to leverage this technology um, if they're going to want to remain relevant. And if they don't, nothing is going to stop crypto. Let me just add a point to you know enhance what I was saying and to add what Josh was saying now. When you interact with your bank as a customer, there's a lot going on in the background that you're not aware of. Uh, you don't know what's happening when you swipe your visa card. You know, the point of sale sends a message you know, back to the, the other bank, from the merchant's bank, the acquiring bank, to the other bank, and then relays a message back to the point of sale device to approve a message. When you make an EFT payment, you don't know which technology systems you're using in the background to make that happen. When you make an international payment, you don't actually know what's really going on in the back end. Well, most people don't. And it would be similar to offering a product to customers that leverages the benefits of, let's say, the Bitcoin blockchain, where the customer doesn't actually know what's going on in the back end. And the way that I would see banking evolve in the future is the banks that are going to survive and thrive, let me put it that way, um, are going to be the ones who see the benefits of these new technologies and are able to integrate it in a way that's very seamless and simple to use for customers rather than the customer having to go to you know manage their own risk of managing their own keys and make these transactions and then sell on an exchange in order to make a sort of international remittance payment to customers so that's where i would see this going this is a new technology that slots into banking what banks do in order to make customers' lives better and to provide better services. All right. I mean, we've also seen, I mean, Vestec is kind of out there and you are sort of leading in the space. Um, I I may be incorrect in saying that. Well, we're uh, out of the ordinary. Out of the ordinary, yeah. Okay. But we've also seen FNB withdrawing from this space, you know, where they've actually closed down accounts that are linked to crypto companies. Josh, what are you, what's your feeling about that? Which, Which banks are ahead. Yeah, so I mean, I would, Chris is probably better to comment, but what I would say is that clearly FNB has just decided the risk at the moment is is too high, not necessarily because they're opposed to the technology itself, but we've seen there are scams in the industry. There are people leveraging maybe their FNB bank accounts to execute on these scams. And for a number of reasons, I suppose FNB has probably decided that those risks, um, compliance risks essentially outweigh 
um, the benefit of being an early participant um, in in this market. And that's obviously their prerogative. Um, but I think other banks who, I mean, Standard Bank, for example, um, is supporting um, most businesses at the moment that operate in the crypto crypto space. I know there was a time where they said they wouldn't open new new accounts for those kinds of businesses. It definitely doesn't say anything to me about the technology itself. It's much more risk-focused conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ultimately the that's going to change. The markets are going to be become more, more regulated eventually, um, at which point even the slowest moving of banks are going to have to catch a wake-up call and, and figure out how they want to participate. Um, but it obviously comes at a cost because you're you're delaying and you're delaying your participation in the market. And if we're right about this and in five or 10 years time, your average bank is leveraging crypto technology to run the backend systems that they operate on, then the banks who right now have stepped back and said, we're not working with crypto, you would assume would be disadvantaged in that scenario. It's probably something they've weighed up, but that's my thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, do you know the, the, the American writer Doug Casey, he wrote uh, an article some time ago about crypto and what it really means for, for banking. Because w- what is banking today but a very sophisticated software program? Yes, there are buildings and there are all sorts of uh, infrastructure behind that. But it's very interesting when you look at the banking model that, uh, and it always struck me as quite staggering, that everything that moves, every monetary value that moves on this planet, there, there is uh, an intermediary. Somebody is taking a percentage. I've written quite a lot about this in, in MoneyWeb. You know, even uh, your bounced debit orders, you know, I, I looked into that and found out that the banks were making 800 to a billion a month on penalty fees for bounced debit orders. And you can see the, the incentives that have become quite perverse because, you know, a guy who bounces his debit orders in financial trouble, you then whack him with a 75 or 100 rand fee. You, he's more likely the next month to repeat. You know, so that's, that's kind of an, an incentive that grows. I'm just using that as one example. But there are many areas where this would be challenged by blockchain technology, where you have lower costs that it is going to come. We've already spoken about the $1 billion, $1 billion transaction. Do you see that the, the traditional banking model, Chris, I'm addressing this to you, do you see the traditional banking model being under threat in the next 10 years through the, this technology just being leveraged to lower costs and bring greater facilitation peer-to-peer? Yeah, look, so there's a, there's a big drive in the blockchain space, public blockchain specifically, uh, blockchains like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on, to build trust-minimized systems. And what that means is ultimately to have a, a monetary and financial technology system where people who use it don't need to rely extensively on these intermediaries that you just described. You know, it remains to be seen whether end users, you know, prefer that or whether they would like to have somebody on the other side of a phone in order to, if something goes wrong, make a phone call to troubleshoot, uh, you know, to have some type of guarantees to when transactions happen. And so I think there are going to be different models that we see evolving on this new technology in order to offer different levels of service and different types of guarantees to people who use these technologies. But, you know, it's, it's like trying to make predictions about the Internet in the late 80s, early 90s. It's extremely hard to do. I do see emerging something uh, beautiful but also scary in many senses of the word. And so I think there is going to be a role for intermediaries to, to handhold people into this new monetary and financial technology system. Mm. And so that's where I see people like, like ourselves at Investec, other banks, the likes of Bitfund, 
acting as intermediaries, but eliminating many of the intermediaries that sit, sit in the back end in order to just provide better services to their customers. All right, then let's talk about that, the investment side, because that's one area where we have seen quite rapid adoption. People are backing Bitcoin and they're backing other cryptocurrencies and they've done very well, you know, and they're very happy with that. This brings in Bitfund. You are in a fairly unusual space. There there are companies out there that are offering the equivalent of a a unit trust type investment where you can spread your investment over a number of different cryptos. What you've done is something but different from that is where you can construct your own index. Now, nobody's going to know how to do that. So maybe just explain what it is that you do and, 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 and what are some of the results that you're finding when you build these different indices? Yeah, so we do offer the ability to, to construct almost any index that you like out of the top 20 or so cryptocurrencies at the moment. And alongside that, we've been offering pretty much since the beginning um, a couple pre-specified portfolios that, that each have their own method of determining how much of each crypto is in the index. But they function very similarly to an ETF or a unit trust. But you are correct in saying that we, we have built this unique offering where customers may not be interested in one of those pre-specified indices. They may have, be aware of a specific cryptocurrency or project that they um, think has legs and want to increase their exposure to that um, specific crypto. And so what our product allows them to do then is, is pretty much drag a slider and say, I want more of this and less of this. The results that we've seen are, are very mixed. Naturally, you have customers doing very different things. For example, you may find um, some customers with almost all of their portfolio in the bottom three of the top 20 cryptocurrencies, if that makes sense. Um, so 17th, or 18th, 19th, and 20th. And that's obviously a much more volatile index um, compared to, let's say, a market cap weighted top 10. So the results have been very mixed. Um, clients have very differing returns as a result. But what works very well for us as a result is that we've got a, a client base that, that have, as I said, very differing portfolios. And what that allows us to do is on a weekly basis when our clients are having their portfolios rebalanced, in other words, certain cryptos are being bought and sold to maintain the percentage in each cryptocurrency for all of our clients, is the net trade that actually has to happen um, on the international crypto exchanges is actually a lot lower than if we were giving everyone the same portfolio. And that's just based on on the simple economics behind it. And so as a result, we're able to keep the cost of of rebalancing very low. And that obviously benefits our clients because it means we don't have to have to charge as much to to, to run the business. And that's that is the sort of the niche that we're we're operating in at the moment. We are launching some new things very soon, which which I can't talk about too much now. But we think the space that we're in is is a very interesting one for for consumers because your average consumer, from what we've seen, yes, the first step is usually getting into getting some exposure to Bitcoin. That's usually kind of the stepping stone into the world of crypto. But after that, very quickly, a lot of people realize they they want to get more exposure than than just one cryptocurrency. And in that way, it's very similar to the traditional world of indices, where you're looking for something that gives you diversification, but that doesn't have very high costs with actively managed portfolios and performance fees and all that, all that sort of stuff. So that's pretty much been, been our experience with this type of a product is that it's very well suited for, for those individuals who are, who are looking for that 
element of diversification, but don't want to have to do all the hard work themselves. Right. Chris, a couple of questions here from MoneyWeb readers. Maybe you can help them out. One says uh, his business has been smashed by COVID, but he does have a little bit of money left. He wants to get involved in crypto. What should he do? That's the one, the one reader. The other one says, um, I, I want to get involved in crypto. Where should I start? What, what would your recommendation be to those two I think two my readers? answer to both is uh, start reading and understanding these technologies. Uh, maybe begin by downloading a wallet for two blockchains to begin with. Um, and where know, would Put a small that? amount of money in. You're not going to, if you've just lost your business and you don't have sufficient savings in order to see you through, I'd say, several months. I'm not giving financial advice here. Yeah. You don't want to be putting your last penny into crypto assets at this point. You need to start learning about these things, interacting in a small scale with the technology so you can begin to understand how it all works and where the opportunities might lie. There's a lot of friction in the space. So, um, you know, Josh was talking about the friction of trying to construct a, an index or a portfolio if you're an individual. There's a lot of work associated with that. It's a, it's a mission to do. Um, they've solved for that mission and that, that amount of work that an individual has to do by building a business that acts as an intermediary that makes it really easy for people to do that. Right. So the only way that you're going to figure out what you can do and what the opportunities really are is by getting involved and in solving problems that you yourself face in this ecosystem. And there are tremendous opportunities there. And so people need to get involved from that perspective, I would say. Josh, what would your advice be to those two readers? One, who's got he's, he's on his last legs, he's got a little bit of money left. Uh, I, I would say don't invest in cryptos with that. Make sure that your family is fed, that you you know you can keep uh, body and soul together, and and perhaps you know start up a new business if you have a little bit of money. Now, the other person does have some money, wants to get started in crypto. Where should he start? Absolutely. Yeah. So what I would say to someone like that is if you've if you've never invested in crypto before, like Chris said, you absolutely have some reading to do. You should understand the space. You should understand what you're getting into. And from there, if you decide that you like what you see and you agree with the, the core principles of crypto as an asset class, then take a first step and invest a bit of money. There are many ways to do that. You can invest just in Bitcoin, for example, if you if you just want exposure to one. If you want exposure to more, there are businesses like ours, like Bitfund, where you can um, very easily get exposure to, to, to 20, for example, if you want. But start small and, and take it from there. I mean, we've seen countless cases of people who have gone really overboard in their in, in their investing and um, if you were an investor in late 2017 for example even now you may not have have made back some of the losses that you experienced um, and so what a very common approach also is is dollar cost averaging um, and for for listeners who aren't aware of what that is it's essentially where if you want to invest let's say 10,000 rand in the space you don't put it all in at once you'll do it for example once a week maybe a thousand rand every week for 10 weeks, or maybe even a, a bit of a slower scale than that. But as a result, you get this exposure over time and you're a little bit less sensitive to um, big price movements because the average price that you get is obviously more well-rounded than if you were to put it all in at once. And we've seen many clients doing that on our platform with differing rates of success, naturally. Um, but that's, that's, I think, quite a common approach. Chris, what would your advice to somebody who says, uh, I'm new to crypto, I want to start immediately. Should he buy Bitcoin as a, as, a, as a start or should he go somewhere else? 
So look, like I was saying, the, the only way to participate here is not only by deploying capital into it. You know, there's there's many ways people can participate. So it depends on what that person's unique skills are. You know, if that person's a developer or programmer or an engineer, they need to start understanding the technology because they can contribute on the tech front. They can build code that enhances these these systems, you know, or build little applications that makes it some element of this big ecosystem better. Um, if it's somebody who just has capital that wants to deploy, they clearly need to understand what they would be investing in. Owning a piece of a Bitcoin or many Bitcoins is owning a stake in the infrastructure. It's like owning a piece of land on a city, well, on a future city. It's a plot of land where you think a city is going to be built in the future. Right. And so owning Bitcoin is like owning that. But you need to understand why the city might move there and why it's going to become a desirable place to live, to have an address in the future. Right. So you need to learn about it. But buying Bitcoin and owning Bitcoin is obviously also not the only way. You can invest in businesses that are building on top of the blockchain as well. You know. Yeah. Um, and so, so there's so many ways to to skin this but the first place is just start understanding what's going on you know read some material there's obviously lots of great uh, resources to to get familiar and to start learning about these things that didn't really exist five years ago so there's a lot of content available on the old internet rails that gives you the ability to learn about the internet of money josh what about the regulation at the moment we have no regulation the financial services conduct authorities say they are about to put all crypto companies under the FISA Act. That's the Financial Advisory Intermediary Services Act. What do you think about that? Honestly, my view is that something is better than nothing. Given what we've seen in the industry at the moment um, with a huge amount of scams, as I said earlier, people losing money left, right and center without even touching crypto. I think something has to be done about regulating market participants. Um, at the very least, um, it should be something like requiring proper FICA to happen to prevent money laundering or to... Just explain FICA for people who don't know. Financial Intelligence Center Act, right? Yeah. Anti-money laundering, basically. Exactly. So yeah. the, the whole purpose behind it is to know who your customer is. It's known as KYC. And it's essentially a process of vetting every customer to ensure that, first of all, they are who they say they are. And but also that they're a real person, they're from where they say they're from, and that they, they, don't, they don't have any sort of blacklist against their name where they, they, shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be getting into any kind of financial transactions like this. And as a result, you can dramatically decrease the amount of transactions that are happening in the crypto space um, that have something to do with money laundering or drugs trafficking or any, any of these kinds of things that historically um, the, the, the world of crypto has been associated with. That said, many crypto businesses who are, who are participating in the space now for many years have already been self-regulating in that respect, Bitfund included, where even though we aren't mandated by law to do so, we, we take on the responsibility um, because it's essentially for not only is it the ethical approach, but also it's, 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 it's good for the world of crypto in general. No one wants to see crypto being associated with, with, with those types of, of illicit acts. Um, and so the better we're able to do these kinds of things, the better the name for crypto and the more room it has to grow. So, yeah, when it comes to the official regulations now, I welcome any kind of progress. Um, I think we probably are, are can be inspired by many um, foreign kind of um, uh, examples um, that have taken place. Um, but I think it's the market's ready. It's matured a lot, and um, some some better regulation is 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 overdue. 
Chris, what do you think about what, what regulation do we need? And is that an important step in building trust and wider adoption in the crypto community? Yeah, so, so in order to use these technologies, you still need to either trust the technology itself. So it might be, let's say, Bitcoin is a monetary technology. You've got, you got to trust that that does what it says it does. There's a lot of effort required in order to to do that and to know how to manage your private keys and how to send a transaction and all these things. If you're using Ethereum, same thing. You need to trust that network and understand how it works. You can, if you don't, if you're not at that point yet, you can trust an intermediary in order to to do that work for you and to kind of handhold you and make it safer for you to interact with these technologies. Um, so you still need to trust somebody in order to interact with this new world of, of money. Mm. Um, but you can't always trust the people that you deal with. And so that's where we've seen uh, scams and Ponzi's and things that give uh, the space a, a, you know, a bad reputation and a bad name. Um, and so I think on the consumer protection front, in order to put some type of frameworks in place, in order to, you know, have a have a have a th- sort of regulatory or even a market check on who these participants are that are acting as intermediaries is important. Right. So, and and, and that's that's the big focus I see at this point from the regulatory front, not just in SA but globally, is to how do we put some consumer protections in place. Uh, in order to protect customers interacting with these new technology systems. Mm. Because a big difference um, between, if we're talking specifically about crypto assets like Bitcoin and and traditional fiat currencies, is the technology of Bitcoin, the biggest innovation of it is that it self-regulates the money ledger and the Mm. issuance Mm. of the money. So you don't have to regulate the technology. The technology regulates itself. You need to effectively come up with some type of consumer protections um, where intermediaries are, 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 you know, introducing customers into these systems. Because like Josh said, you can, you can sign up and become a customer of a business where you transfer rands to them. They tell you that they're buying Bitcoin in your name for your account, but they're not. And they disappear with the money. So that's the big risk. And, you know, that needs to be solved for. Josh, another MoneyWeb reader writes in and uh, he's concerned about these scams. How do you spot a scam, he's asking? Well, I guess fortunately, um, in most cases, um, the scams are associated with, and this isn't a general rule, so so, so don't misinterpret it, but um, the scams are associated with very unrealistic returns. So what you'll see is there'll be a guaranteed return. Um, it will vest on a daily basis or on a weekly basis and at the end of the period you may even have to pay to get your funds out um, and so a very common thing to look out for is is, is those th- those types of things guaranteed returns being the most common and other than that um, I think it's just very important to 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 do your research you shouldn't really be making these kinds of transactions with someone who you don't know over whatsapp um, you should rather be looking for businesses that have public presences, that um, have reviews, that have um, bank accounts of their own, that have um, people who, who can stand up and say that they, 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 they successfully managed to get their money out. Um, it's, it's, crypto scams are, are no different from, 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 from any other scam that's happened in the past where it's, it, it's all about um, 
making sure you're dealing with someone that's trustworthy. Um, and in South Africa specifically, um, we've seen just an, an enormous amount of the stuff happening just over WhatsApp. Um, you'll have a person who is saying they have, they'll send you a, an image that says, here's your returns, and it's got um, a fancy-looking graphic, and it says you're going to get 2% per day, um, and it's going to get paid out after six weeks. Um, and people are are falling for it all the time. Um, and so so those are the types of things to, to be very wary of. Um, and if you've got any doubt, usually you're correct. Um, the gut instinct has a very, very good way of, of detecting these things. So that's what I'd recommend. I will say, though, that there is um, the onshore, offshore Bitcoin arbitrage trade yes. that to many people seems too good to be true. But, but it's a legitimate it's market. Legitimate, it's yeah. legitimate. Um, I've done it. I'm sure you guys have yeah. done it too. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and that's due to exchange control regulations that leads to this discrepancy in market prices between the RAND Bitcoin price and the dollar or euro Bitcoin price offshore. Yes. Um, and so so to many people, that also seems too good to be true. So so um, I just wanted to make that point because yeah. there might be a few <laughs> yeah. people yeah, listening and, and, going, but that's like a we, legitimate trade. We had trade. Uh, John Ovadia from OVEX on last week just talking about this very thing. And, and I did, in fact, have a writer, a MoneyWeb reader write to me and say, is this a scam? And I said, no, it's, it's arbitrage. It's legitimate. Yeah. Arbitrage is the exploitation of different prices in different markets for the yes. same asset. Yeah. But again, I guess to say is if you're going to trust somebody else to trade that for you, you need to know who you're you dealing need to know with, who you're dealing exactly. with. Yeah. and you need yeah. to do your homework on those yeah. on those entities or individuals. Right. Okay. So we're running out of time here, but I do have one or two uh, quick questions for you. Just to pick up on that point about identifying scams, ownership of the wallet is important. If you are handing over your Bitcoin to somebody else and it sits in their wallet, and they are not trustworthy, it you could end up you've lost your Bitcoin. Right, Bitcoin is very, it it it's a very secure system, but if you don't know what you're doing, it can be very very insecure. Chris, do you want to talk about that quickly? The ownership of the wallet. You know, you, if you're depositing Bitcoin, make sure that you it's in your wallet, or a trusted wallet. So you're saying if you own if you. A lot of the scams are asking you to send your Bitcoin to to somebody else's wallet, to and we're going to trade it. And you could just have shadow accounts that are running there, which seem to reflect some sort of growth in your profit, but you you have no idea. Yeah. Look. So the way that you are the rightful owner of a Bitcoin is by having control of the private key or the wallet that those Bitcoins are held in. So if you want to take full responsibility of managing your own Bitcoin, you, you need to take the risk and you need to understand what you're doing and manage those keys yourself. So obviously, w- various ways to do it from hardware wallets to uh, you know, non- non-custodial software wallets with a seed phrase that you have to back up and so on and so forth. Most people, I suspect, don't want to go through the effort and take the risk uh, of, of, of managing these keys themselves. So they need to entrust, again, an intermediary to do that for them. Um, you know, so it could just be a custodial wallet provider uh, who manages those keys. Be careful around who you use. You know, uh, leverage your trust networks. Look at who's been around for a while. You know, do your homework on those custodial wallet providers. Um, if if somebody's again going to be trading your Bitcoin for you to generate a return, look at the scam red flags and risks that Josh, Josh explained earlier. But yes, you're going to be sending your Bitcoin to someone. 
And if they want to exit scam you, in other words, if they want to take your money and disappear, you are going to have no recourse. So you need to yeah. be aware of that risk. All right. Um, I think just to make a sort of point on this is, is, is what we've been doing and thinking about and doing a lot of research on at Investec Private Banking is to think, how can we solve problems here? Whether it be public blockchains like Bitcoin or Ethereum, whether it's a RAND stablecoin that's issued by the South African Reserve Bank, like we participated in Project Coca, which was to create a, basically a settlement RAND on a blockchain network. You have to have a secure wallet that can be trusted in order to interact with these systems. And so we've been spending some time um, figuring out and, and building these capabilities, uh, working closely with regulators to see what and how and when we could take a product like that to market. Right, Josh, you, anything to add to that? The only thing to add, I guess, is that there always will be technically savvy um, individuals who, who do trust their, their own ability to, to keep that key safe. And in, in that regard, um, I'm all aboard that, that view. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's kind of at odds with the type of off- offering that we have at Bitfund because um, our product uh, operates in, in an environment where we take custody of your crypto. But it's a different it's a different type of individual there. It's someone who who, who doesn't um, have that that tech savvy to be able to um, to really really um, ensure that they don't somehow lose their 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 Bitcoin um, by way of losing access to their private key or exposing their private key. Um, but yeah, it's just that I guess there's nothing wrong with taking that approach if you do have the the know-how. Right, custodianship, of course, is is going to be a huge part of. Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto going forward, um, because institutions, when they, when they, if they're going to invest in the space, they want to know that their crypto is safe. So, you know, can it withstand a 9/11 attack? Can it withstand a solar flare? Can it withstand electronic magnetic impulse? So, all of these kind of potential risks that have to be looked at. Chris, is that right? Yeah, totally. I mean. Banks are custodians of, of uh, people's financial information and deposits. Um, banks are mostly, mostly IT systems. They're technology systems today. Uh, you know, if you look at the RAND in circulation, only 3% of all RANDs in circulation is physical banknotes and, and coin. Yeah. Um, most of the money in circulation that people are using daily are ones and zeros in, in electronic databases. And so... Banks are already custodians of financial information and data. Um, and I think it's not a stretch to also act as custodians to these keys where you're mentioning various threats and risks. Banks have actually very robust systems, failovers, backups, and various things to ensure that that in that apocalyptic scenario that you <laughs> described, you know, things don't, you know, don't, don't fall over and go badly wrong. Just so be- I see a role there, but... It's not only going to be the domain of banks, obviously. Right. So, and an interesting analogy here, for example, just I know we're probably almost out of time, mm. but American Express and Wells Fargo were courier companies that used to ship physical money, gold, right. from the east to the west coast and back in America. They were payment companies that became banks. The form of that type of banking was very different to how it is today because now it's mostly electronic banking. And so you can think of these electronic messages being sent around the internet. Well, who sends the most electronic messages? You know, who manages a lot? Who's custodian of a lot of client, you know, 
information. It's not only the domain of banks. There are other businesses that, that can participate and compete with banks. And that's obviously going to be the interesting dynamic to see how this all plays out. But for example, G4S Security is a custodian of physical assets and various vaults and safes that they have for customers and they ship these, these uh, goods too. They not so long ago uh, announced that they're going to offer digital asset custody for their customers too. So they're in the business of safekeeping. So they now can get into safekeeping digital assets as well and start acting as a bank. So it'll be interesting to see what emerges out of all of this. Yes, and and some of these companies that you have, I think Iron Mountain is one of them, where they they keep custody of your, your physical documents. But now they've also got units which do the digital. So you can see that very point about Wells Fargo and American Express and and how they evolve into banking and custodianship. Just very quick question. You mentioned the the point about a stable coin backed by the RAND. What would be the benefit of having a stable coin backed by the RAND? Yeah, so it gives the ability to people to transact over new payment rails, blockchain payment rails. So instead of having the costs of making EFT transfers or swiping your card at point of sale, where we discussed those costs earlier, uh, you could move onto a blockchain rail where those costs could potentially be dramatically reduced, I think would be the first thing. You know, most customers don't see that because the cost will fall to the merchant most of the time. Um, But I think that would be on the cost front. Uh, It could be beneficial to the entire economy. And if you think of it like this, two percentage points a year could provide quite a boost to GDP by reallocating capital to other avenues. So interesting. And then on the other hand, I guess we're seeing explosive growth and usage of uh, financial smart contracts, specifically on Ethereum at the moment. And as that, uh, the smart contract, this ecosystem or industry grows over time, it means if you own a RAND stablecoin on a blockchain like Ethereum, you'd be able to consume all of your financial services outside of traditional banking. I'm not going to sort of give a view on whether that's a good or bad thing or what the consequences of that might be, but I would think that that might be a benefit to consumers and to the economy in the future as well. Josh, uh, stablecoins, are they going to become critical to this whole crypto space going forward? Well, I think stability is going to be critical if that comes by a stable coin that's linked to some kind of traditional asset or if there are other economic principles that we can we can sort of rely on to to create a digital asset that has stability in its value i do think it's going to be essential um, because like you said earlier i think um, you don't want to have to um, buy a coffee for example and and a couple of days later, you paid double what it was when you bought it. Um, and so because the, the the Bitcoin that you're paying with has moved in price, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and people aren't going to want to spend that uh, if if that's a possibility. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So my comparison obviously was I was comparing the blockchain rand to the traditional rand, um, but I think Josh's point is very good around the need of a stable rand or dollar coin versus a Bitcoin. Yes. As a payments payments currency, right? I, I guess we probably should explain that a, a stable coin is it's it's a crypto coin which is actually backed one to one with a, a physical asset like the rand or the dollar. Yeah, and there are quite a few of them now, and they're growing. They're, they're growing. 
Okay, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. That was a fascinating discussion. Thank you both for coming into the MoneyWeb studio. That was Chris Becker, blockchain lead at Investec Private Bank, and Josh Mills, who is one of the co-founders of crypto company Bitfund.